this is my conversation with Chiara Marletto. Chiara is a quantum physicist and research fellow at Wolfson College, University of Oxford. Her research interests are at the foundations of physics, which include focusing on issues in quantum information theory, condensed matter physics, quantum biology, and thermodynamics. Together with David Deutsch, she is the pioneer of constructed theory, a new mode of scientific explanation which expresses physical laws in terms of counterfactuals, that is, what can and cannot happen. She's the author of The Science of Can and Can't, subtitled A Physicist's Journey Through the Land of Counterfactuals, which is all about constructed theory and its implications. In our conversation, though, we leave out the details and technicalities of constructed theory, which can be learned through Kiara's amazing book and the constructed theory website. And instead, we talk about Kiara's lovely childhood that led to her developing an interest in fundamental physics, people being a force of nature, knowledge, instrumentalism, reductionism, information having physical properties, updates on constructed theory, and more. Unfortunately, the audio quality on Kiara's end is a little off for the first 10 minutes or so, as does some disturbance from the microphone, but it gets much better after that. Apologies for this. The podcast is still a work in progress, and I'm learning with each episode. Your support makes it better. I hope you enjoy. All right, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to for some time now, and it's with someone whose work I really admire. So, Kiara, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It means a lot. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's great. I thought we could begin with your background, if that's okay, and how you came to do what you do. So you've illustrated some beautiful childhood experiences of yours in your amazing book, The Science of Can and Can't, which adds a really playful taste to it. So I'd love to hear more about how it was like and how you developed your love for seeking good explanations. Um, yeah, so I I think I, uh, I really have a space, a special kind of place in my memories for, for my childhood because... Um, well, I really enjoyed it, and I think it was a time where I I was you know lucky enough to have um, lots of lots of space to explore um, ideas, and this was within my family. I think both my parents really liked telling me stories and uh, you know enhance this um, sort of imagination. Uh, capacity that, that we have and try to stimulate it. And, and this happened since I was a very little kid. But also, you know, let's say at school, I, I kind of encountered some really inspirational teachers and that was, that was really exciting to me. Um, and um, I think the, the main thing I really enjoyed out of all of the stuff I learned, you know, partly school, partly my family and partly also with friends and so on, was this, um, this thing that uh, we humans do really well, which is to tell stories. And the storytelling uh, aspect led me somehow to first imagine myself, you know, as a grown-up, as, as someone who would uh, be a writer, um, and then, um, you know, that, that turned into a philosopher, uh, and this was when I was a teenager. I kind of got into into philosophy a lot. I really enjoyed it. But but it was only later that I realized that actually um, physics, out of all 
disciplines that I came across was really the, the thing that allows you to tell the most compelling stories about um, reality. And when I realized that, it was a bit late in the sense that this happened at the university. So after secondary school, I kind of took a while before I actually uh, decided to, you know, fall in love with, with the subject. But when it happened, it was really like a sort of revelation. And, um, and since then, I, I really just decided that that was my, uh, what, what I wanted to do as a, you know, as I wanted to do research in this field. Uh, and in fact, I think studying physics really also touches on all sorts of philosophical issues. Um, and you have to have some, uh, some kind of um, taste for, for fun and for fantasy as well, in the sense that you, you, need to, uh, you need to be able to come up with explanations that are, on the one hand, watertight and you know, meaningful and uh, kind of co co com complying with, with experiments and so on. But at the same time, you want them to be new and different and uh, somehow, you know, going beyond what we know. So in that sense, you really need some imagination to, to think of what could the next step be. Uh, and, uh, and so I think this is really the aspect of physics that I enjoy the most. And that's what makes me um, sort of have, have fun when I'm, when I'm kind of thinking about physical problems. Uh, and so, yeah, so I guess in this short, this is the, the sort of path in terms of ideas that I've followed. But this constant aspect of storytelling is always there. And it's a very important one. And it seemed to me that it puts together, uh, if you like, all of the things we do in not just physics, but other parts of science and also in the humanities, when we try to come up with good stories, we really try to come up with good explanations. And, um, you know, it so happens in my case, I think physics is the best place where I can try to do that. But there are all sorts of other disciplines that are also very uh, interesting. They're also based on this kind of thing. Yeah, um, you can definitely see that in your book, like the storytelling aspect, as well as the, you know, strict explanation part, both of them combining into a beautiful, wonderful book. And so, yeah, you mentioned some form of a revelation when you were, uh, you just started to fall in love with physics and the whole idea of finding physical explanations about the world. So was there a specific moment or a specific experience at university that, you know, led to this, uh, this revelation or this love for seeking physical explanations? Uh, yes, and I think I can, although, I mean, these things happen in a continuum, so it's usually perhaps what happens is that in, when you look back, you try to find some narrative to, you know, explain what happened, yeah. but, but in, let's say in, in my mind, as far as I can remember now, I can identify a couple of moments where, uh, where I had this sort of uh, epiphany kind of moment. Uh, so one was um, early on when, you know, I, I, so I came across, um, this was more like with mathematics rather than with physics. So the first thing that I actually 
kind of found compelling was so we, we so the, the way I, the, the order I sort of met things was like first I met philosophy, um, meaning uh, I studied in detail uh, to some degree, and then after that I um, I had uh, you know I sort of entered the details of, of some kind of mathematics, and I noticed how just how how much powerful the way to express concepts like infinity, for example, was in mathematics. So, for example, uh, you know, I really loved the idea of, of um, infinite series. And I, so when I kind of understood the idea of convergence within mathematics, this was early on when I was a teenager, I think that really sort of grabbed me a lot. And I thought this was compelling and, uh, very economical in, you know, it's just you can express the idea of infinity with, with a formula, but at the same time, it has a lot of depth in terms of conceptual depth, etc. So that was one aspect that somehow shifted my interest from, say, humanities, which was my early sort of love, um, to, towards more mathematical and, and finally natural sciences. And then later, I think... Um, I uh, had this experience of encountering in university the, um, well, the field of quantum mechanics, which happens to be the field where I work now. And uh, it was presented to me in a very confusing way. So I think unlike uh, Newtonian mechanics, there was, you know, the first thing I met, and it wasn't very interesting to me, I found it not so... Um, deep or somehow I didn't quite uh, understand the, the depth of the, of the subject at the time. But with quantum theory, I think because it was presented to me in such a confusing way, I, I could kind of, um, I found it like a puzzle. And then I think the process of gradually understanding how to make sense of it with, with um, you know, various conversations with, with some of my uh, mentors and also separately just by reading things, uh, so the, the fact that I managed to make more sense of it, um, eventually moving away from actually what's, what's the kind of stuff that's taught uh, in textbooks, which is very confusing about quantum mechanics usually, that was really exciting. And uh, so that was the second time, the second point where I kind of got really um, uh, sort of grabbed by the subject. And once it took hold of me, this, uh, especially specifically the study of theoretical quantum physics, um, I couldn't, you know, I just, uh, I just decided I couldn't stop. So I, I, I thought I want to become a researcher in that field. And, and uh, yeah, here I am. So that's, I mean, this kind of happened. So I guess that's, that these are the two key uh, stages that I can remember where I changed the course of my uh, kind of focus. Very cool. Yes. So I want to read a paragraph from Antonio Stupani's monumental three-volume geology textbook called Curso di Geologia. Excuse my Italian. Now, so let me let me read it out first. Uh, this is translated from the original Italian to English, by the way. So Antonio writes, I do not hesitate to proclaim this the Anthropocene era. 
The creation of man is the introduction of a new form of being into nature, a force previously absent from the world. Dot, dot, dot. This new element, more than any that previously existed anywhere, not only relates the non-living world to the living as had already happened, but in a new and mysterious way unifies physical principles and with intellectual and moral ones. It is a force which, in its power and universality, is not inferior to any of the other great forces of nature. End quote there. So, that paints a really beautiful picture of humans being a force of nature. And you've written that knowledge is one of the most resilient things in the universe. So, let's begin there. Why do you think knowledge is so resilient? And perhaps explain the term resilience for those listening and are unfamiliar with our work because you seem to use it in a deep manner. Yes, uh, that's a very nice quote, by the way. Um, and um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, so it really focuses on this idea that, um, well, humans are one of the things in the universe that we know that can create knowledge. And um, as such, they, they're very interesting because um, this kind of substance, which I will we'll talk about in a moment, uh, is, is um, somehow uh, looks like an abstraction, something that isn't really physical. But actually, uh, not only is it physical, but also it has um, the, the ability to modify physical systems. And so this is the sense in which I use it in the book. And really, this is a conception that's been introduced by uh, David Deutsch, who kind of um, is the originator of this idea of knowledge as a um, kind of physical um, entity that can cause transformations in the physical world and uh, the, the, that concept of knowledge itself in turn comes from, on the one hand, um, modern biology. So I think in David's uh, book, Fabric of Reality, there's a lot of discussion about neo-Darwinism, which is like the modern version of Darwin's theory of evolution, where knowledge is very important. And on the other hand, the concept of knowledge philosophically um, in, in the particular way that, that we use it, comes from Popper. So I think this philosopher had an interesting um, take on the idea of knowledge in the sense that he um, stressed how it's possible to have knowledge without having a knowing subject. So in that sense, um, it's important that this is not uh, like a subjective entity which Sometimes it's the way it's used in, in some parts of, of philosophy. But here we mean it in a very objective sense. So it's kind of objective knowledge. Um, and the way I think about knowledge is really as a particular kind of information. And again, when I say information, I don't mean something ab abstract. I think uh, of information as something that can be contained by particular physical systems uh, that have two properties. One is that they have a set of states that can be uh, transformed into each other, um, into one another in all possible ways. And the other property is that these states can be copied. That's very important. And these are 
sort of physical systems that we call information media, uh, a bit is a typical example. And in addition to being information, knowledge has this uh, extra property, which is the one that's of interest to us and connects back to the passage you read, which is the fact that um, it can cause itself to remain um, embodied in physical systems once, once it's created. So for instance, in the you know, biosphere, there are, you can think of some uh, traits, um, sorry, some uh, bits of the uh, genome that code for given traits for a particular organism as uh, information. And then some of these traits, uh, some of these, sorry, um, bits of the genome that code for, let's say, successful traits um, could be regarded as knowledge in the sense that they uh, cause themselves to remain in, instantiated in physical systems uh, for like a kind of long period of time across different generations uh, and they survive natural selection. Now, um, humans, uh, together with natural selection, uh, are two examples of processes of, of entities that can create knowledge out of no knowledge. So natural selection creates knowledge out of, um, well, out of the process of evolution. And we know you can start with something that doesn't have knowledge at all uh, in the early beginnings. And uh, humans, on the other hand, do it in a different way. Um, it's a different kind of process, more directed, and it happens in their brains, in our brains. Um, and, and this process is something that we don't quite understand at the moment, in the sense that it seems to me we have some ways of describing what happens when a human being thinks and creates a new idea. But these ways are mostly uh, descriptive, and if we try to emulate some of these processes, we can do that in a very uh, specific way with some kind of, um, for, for specific tasks. But it's difficult to achieve the somehow um, broad universal way in which um, human brains usually work when they come up with ideas in all sorts of contexts. And uh, so in that sense, I think the, the fact that we have two physical processes, one is the process of thinking, the other one is the process of natural selection, that can create a particular kind of information that's resilient and can remain instantiated in physical systems, um, despite the fact that the universe is not designed for that to happen, is not only a very interesting thing, but somehow it's of interest for physics, because these are two physical processes and it would be very important to have a theory a physical theory of what's going on during these processes. And I don't think we have it yet. We know they are compatible with the laws of physics as we know them, but we don't have a mechanism, especially for thinking, that um, is um, kind of explanatory enough to, to tell us how, how uh, you know, new knowledge is created in general. So that's something that I think it would be really interesting to study. And ultimately, this is important, you know, from a more narrow-minded point of view. I think it's important for, 
you know, even our own survival, because um, the fact that uh, human, uh, you know, humanity is surviving and has been surviving so far depends on the <clears throat> ability to create knowledge to address issues that come up. And um, it would be really important to be able to know how to do this more, uh, I'd say, deterministically, if you see what I mean. Um, so that so that we, you know, we can actually make progress, in, you know, in a more directed way and fa in a faster way, so that we can address all of these issues that we are facing, for example, right now. Uh, so, so in this sense, I think it's even interesting, not just from the foundational point of view, but somehow it's vital for for us to to sort of to survive uh, ultimately. Yeah, I love how you called. Uh the whole of humanity's survival, a narrow-minded point of view. But, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess, I, guess, I guess one means um, that perhaps is a bit more parochial from our own point of view. I think, in a sense, I guess, you know, there's the beauty of ideas that it would be nice to have a theory about knowledge on the one hand. And then, you know, on the other hand, we have these more mundane, pressing problems that we have to solve. And it would be really nice to have you know, the ability to create knowledge more efficiently and on demand in a sense. And we don't know how to do that. Yeah. Um, so information and knowledge from the surface of it, they seem like abstract entities, right? And you've argued in the book, and if I've gotten this right from what I've heard you speak right now as well, that, you know, if the world wasn't there, if specific things and like specific phys physical systems weren't there in certain ways then information or knowledge might not have existed so the fact that information exists is that it exists within these systems within these physical systems and that's what allows them that that's what allows there to be information and hence knowledge as well yes so um in a universe where um where um, some of these interactions were not available. So supposing we are in a universe where, for example, you cannot copy uh, certain states um, of, of, of matter, uh, then in such a universe, we wouldn't have information uh, in the sense that we, we, we know it. And as a result, we wouldn't have knowledge. So I think this is a, an interesting fact that it's, it's one way to, to, to realize um, why is it that we say that knowledge is physical and information is physical. Because uh, if you remove some features from the laws of physics that we currently uh, think describe the, the universe, for example, the ability to copy things, then these entities wouldn't be allowed anymore. And uh, this is very, um, very deep and, and somehow allows us to say that things that appear to be abstract, like information and, um, and knowledge and other things as well, actually they are not. They are really deeply rooted into physics and they exist only because some features of the laws of physics are there. And the reason why they seem abstract um, 
um, is basically that in the case of information, for example, the, the properties that make an object capable of containing information are largely independent of the special details of that object. So for, for instance, uh, you can say that this property of having copyable states, states that can be copied, is shared by, um, you know, uh, traffic light that can be, you know, either on or off, or, um, you know, a flag that can assume one or of, of say, two colors. Um, a transistor in a computer, which also can be on or off and so on. And all of these are very different physical systems. Uh, but they all have this particular property of having states that can be copied. And this is, um, this is a physical property. And you don't need to specify all the details of your physical system to say that it's a bit. Um, and this is why somehow the fact of being a bit looks like an abstraction. But it's not. And the reason why it's not is because whether or not something is a bit is decided by those physics that this particular object obeys. So yeah, this is a very nice, uh, one of the nicest thing that I think I, I found, um, you know, in this program of research that I'm pursuing with, uh, with David and, and other collaborators here, um, that, you know, it really allows you to pin down the reason why information is physics. Um, yeah, and, uh, and, and it does so in a very general way. Yeah. Yeah, that, that sure is fascinating. And, you know, regarding knowledge, I think David Deutsch distinguishes between explanatory and non-explanatory kinds of knowledge. So explanatory is the uh, more people kind of knowledge, which Popper talked about, and non-explanatory is the biological knowledge that's created out of natural selection. Yeah. And oh, you, like in the book, you seem to talk only in terms of a unified concept of knowledge, if, uh, if I'm getting it right. Is there a reason behind that? Well, I think in the book, I decided to um, to look at knowledge more from the perspective of, of constructor theory, which is this uh, generalization of the quantum theory of, um, of computation that, um, that, I, that I'm pursuing, um, and that kind of uh, David, uh, in, in a way, uh, initiated with Kind of philosophical paper at some point when I actually was doing a PhD here, and then after that we started working together on that, and we ended up writing a paper together on constructive theory of information. And after that, um, I applied some of these ideas also to thermodynamics and and, and so on. Um, and in this theory, you really focus on the counterfactual properties that characterize knowledge, and by counterfactual properties, I mean properties that have to do with which transformations you allow or not uh, on a given um, system. And in this case, if you look at knowledge, explanatory and non-explanatory, from this point of view, you see that both kinds of knowledge have this, um, you know, uh, the same set of counterfactual properties as far as physics is concerned. And then the differences between the two can be established um, 
more on a, um, at this stage, I guess, more on a kind of philosophical basis. And I thought I wouldn't want to go into that in the, in the book because I was focusing more on, like, on the physics side of things. But it's very interesting to understand the difference between the two kinds of knowledge. And um, I guess we'll be there, we'll understand that from the physics point of view when we'll have a, a complete physical theory of knowledge that we currently don't have. Yeah. So, yeah, my like, next question maybe, how has constructed theory been received by the physics community so far? Um, so, I think the, the, it depends a bit like which part of the physics community you consider. Um, in a sense that, so it, constructed theory is really like a spin-off of um, the quantum theory of computation. So in that sense, in the, in the context, so in the, in the, you know, in the foundations of quantum information theory, um, which is the, you know, the set of the part of the community that's closest to my, to me at, um, at present, um, these ideas are somehow um, well understood and they, um, they made some kind of impact. And what people would like to see is a concrete application of this uh, new framework that we came up with. So while on the one hand they are happy with the ideas, they are um, kind of still looking for, for a very um, clear a case where uh, you know, constructive theory really makes a difference at the state, at, at the level of, I don't know, making a particular prediction um, in a you know about a particular physical system where, let's say, you can't use the laws of the quantum theory of information as we know them, etc. Okay. And then, if you move away from this field, like in more distant fields, I guess. Um, it becomes a bit harder to explain these ideas because, for example, in cosmology or particle physics, uh, I think they are still um, perhaps digesting the ideas of the quantum theory of information. So in that case, uh, it requires a lot of explanation to sort of explain even what we're doing. Um, but broadly speaking, I think the, there is an interest and, and people in physics usually are very opportunistic. So they are waiting to see that this works to, you know, take it and work with it. And in that sense, I think I've had really nice collaborators, my students. So I have um, recently written some, some nice works with, with um, uh, Maria Violarius, who is a, one of my students in the context of thermodynamics and then with um, Giuseppe Di Pietro, who is another student of mine, in the context of um, uh, witnessing quantum effects beyond quantum theory and so on. And also with uh, this physicist called Vladko Vedro, who is a quantum physicist here at Oxford, um, applying some of these ideas even to testing quantum effects in gravity. And all of these are examples of these applications that people are looking for. And so now we are waiting to see what uh, the effect of 
you know, putting these ideas out there is. Uh, and um, yeah, I, th I think it's, um, it's, it's very, um, you know, in, in a sense, this is, very, this is a process that is a bit slow, right? Because it takes time for people to read things and then to think about them, etc. But considering how different these ideas are, um, I think I'm very happy about what we've been doing so far in, in convincing and explaining these things to other physicists. And also there is the community of, I forgot to mention this, but there are also theoretical biologists and people who work, for example, on um, the origin of life problem, uh, who um, would like to grab some tools from constructor theory and use it in their own field. So this is something I'm not actively working on at the moment, but I have some, you know, ongoing discussions uh, where we're really trying to use constructor theory to even help solving problems in different fields other than physics or information theory. That's great. That's so great to hear. And yeah, I want to turn to instrumentalism because when I first heard, uh, I think it was David Deutsch, uh, in his book, The Beginning of Infinity or The Fabric of Reality, debunking uh, instrumentalism for us. So, like, I was, like, very curious right now. So, in the modern science world, do you find instrumentalism being used as an excuse for explanation? And if yes, where are some places that it's used? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's... Um... It is a, a, a quite quite a widespread um, way of thinking about um, physics, at least uh, as far as I can tell in my field. And probably it's very—I mean, I, I, I can guess it's it's a thing that affects all all sciences. Um, and it starts, I think, from a from a good intention. So in that sense, you know, the the, the way I understand it is that. Uh, at some point, uh, you know, scientists wanted to give some um, some legitimacy to what they were doing, and this idea of um, of instrumentalism was somewhat useful historically in that context. But then it um, took, you know, a turn for the worse and. <laughs> somehow became a stop, like a barrier um, to, to making progress and asking the right questions. And one example that I can see is the, is exactly, well, it's precisely quantum theory. Uh, so I, I think there are um, some questions in the foundations of quantum theory that have been asked now for more than a century, and these are about the so-called measurement problem and, and so on. And as far as we can tell, um, you know, from, from the way we understand quantum information and uh, quantum theory itself, and with the advancement in, in understanding some of the basic concepts of the, of the foundations of the theory, um, this isn't really a problem. But because it involves um a, a well it involves uh, realizing that there are things 
that a theory can appeal to, which can't be directly measured. Um, and by the way, the theory is testable, so it's a completely yeah. testable theory. Uh, quantum theory can be tested and it's routinely tested in the laboratory, so um, it kind of passes that criterion. But somehow there are some elements it refers to, just like other theories, by the way, um, that are not directly observable. And, and one can discuss what directly observable really means, but let's say... Um, assuming some intuitive meaning for that. And this has created a huge amount of confusion. And the reason why uh, the proposed solutions to this problem, which have been around um, since, in fact, uh, Schrodinger's writings and also Everett's writings and so on, the fact that these solutions to the, to the problem haven't been really taken on board by the whole community is largely due to some philosophical bias which um, it seems to me uh, makes us focus on the wrong problems. And instead of looking for ways to make progress further and beyond quantum theory, makes us discuss things that actually have been solved, long solved. So this is an example where, where this kind of thinking isn't helpful. And, and um, I actually don't know how to solve this. It's a very interesting phenomenon. It's a more like a maybe... You know, it's of interest to perhaps anthropologists as well. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a pervasive one. And I think it's, um, it's very important to discuss this stuff and uh, hopefully also change the way uh, uh, some subjects are taught because quantum theory is taught in, a, in an instrumentalist way uh, in, yeah. in, in, uh, in undergraduate courses and even earlier if you studied when you're doing your secondary school, your A-levels and so on. Um, and uh, it's a shame because it, it really misses the point and it makes you focus on the, on the, on the wrong things. Uh, so, so I'm hoping that at some point, you know, if we manage to achieve uh, some different way of thinking about quantum theory, we will also be able to change the way this is taught in, in standard courses and in textbooks and in lectures and so on. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, to be able to solve that, uh, I don't know how we go through it, but maybe the the way it's taught would be a good place to start. And yeah, it. Yes. What about reduction? What about reductionism? The idea that you know scientific explanations are all about the deepest theory. I think I, I don't think it'll be as big a problem as you know m maybe like as big as instrumentalism, but I still think like you know. So we need to understand the importance of different levels of explanation, right? And we can't just go to the deepest theory we know and just uh, account everything to the movement of particles, which is the supposedly deepest layer of explanation. So, yeah, do you see that cropping up as some form of a problem as well? Yes, uh, that's a very nice uh, question, and it's... it's um... It's related to the, you know, to the previous question in, in the sense that just like in the case of instrumentalism, I think the um, reductionism, when it's taken in its extreme form, um, ends up making, um, making it impossible for us to actually focus on problems that are open and interesting. And we're just not looking into them because we have this uh, sort of bias or, or uh, prejudice. 
Uh, and and so the, the, the thing goes as follows. Usually, so in, in physics, I think you can mean, by reductionism, you can mean a number of things. And um, I have uh, many good friends in, in, you know, in, in science and specifically in physics who actually are proud of being, um, you know, that they, they take this as a matter of, they are proud of being uh, reductionists and, and they want this to be um, a sort of uh, statement against, um, you know, appealing to the supernatural or um, uh, believing in some kind of religious explanations for certain phenomena and so on. And I do um, uh, sympathize with this position. So in a sense, I, I understand this and it, it was a success of science to uh, be able to, uh, you know, explain things like, um, you know, uh, living systems and uh, Mormon, you know, waves and, um, um, you know, like the appearance of the uh, night sky, etc., etc. in terms of more primitive elements using good explanations that can be tested, etc. So in that sense, that's all good. But what is, I think it's, it's not good is to ex extremize this position and end up saying not only, you know, do we not want to appeal to the supernatural, which is a good thing, but, uh, but we also want to say that there's only one allowed uh, ultimate layer of primitive elements in terms of which we want to explain everything. So typically this is taken to be the, you know, the, the, the level of the elementary particles and their dynamical laws or laws of motion. And as soon as you do that, you miss the opportunity of realizing that there are problems that are of interest to physics um, that can be addressed by explanations that are compatible with the dynamical laws and um, the theories we have about the elementary components of matter. But um, they themselves are governed by laws that are not reducible to those. So um, typical example is the theory of computation. So if you think of ways of describing how computing machines behave and um, why is it that you can compose to special purpose machines that can do each an addition or a multiplication and you put them together and you get a more general machine that can be programmed to kind of perform one or the other. So all of these sort of laws that were discovered by Turing and uh, other people who came after um, these are laws and they are laws of physics. They are part of physics because they, as we said earlier, uh, the laws of information theory are um, yes. uh, rooted into physical processes. But they are not reducible to dynamical laws. And by insisting on an extreme version of reductionism, you end up doing one of two things. Either uh, you deny that you know, objects that are possibly macroscopic and uh, emergent um, are of interest to physics, which is a shame because uh, we're missing out on finding laws, for example, about living systems that, that would be very interesting to, to know, as we said earlier. Yes. Um, or uh, you 
you end up kind of um, trying to find still some approximate laws for these entities, but phrased in terms of these elementary constituents and um, their laws of motion. And these laws are not very satisfactory because they end up having lots of approximations in them. And so they, they can at best only partially capture the behavior of these macroscopic emergent objects. And so in that sense, I think reductionism should be um, modified or abandoned uh, if we really want to be able to um, find explanatory laws for all the different layers of physical reality that we can see, including the macroscopic uh, ones. And knowing that these laws are perfectly compatible with the lower level laws, with the elementary ones, but they may be different, formulated in different ways, and they are still laws. They could be exact, uh, they can be tested, etc., and they could be part of physics. Right. And, you know, most progress seems to occur upon a discovery of constraints. So there are certain laws that the universe obeys, and so certain things that can or cannot happen within the universe. So... When we are understanding those laws or making scientific discoveries on the whole, on the whole, we've been able to make progress and utilize constraints productively. So I'm curious how you think of constraints and the things that cannot happen in the universe in general for humans and for making progress. Uh, yes, that's uh, another very nice question um, that touches on, on, on deep issues. Uh, so... I think the the yeah the idea of a constraint is usually taken as at least intuitively um, kind of negatively because we're thinking well constraint is something that restricts our possibilities um, and in fact in science and physics specifically constraints are exactly the opposite in the sense that. Um, there is this nice quote uh, that, you know, the power of scientific theory is in what it forbids. And, and this is true because, uh, well, we can see this, that the more, um, you know, the more explanatory is a theory in physics, for example, um, and the more constraints it has on what is, um, you know, impossible to do. And turns out actually that sometimes out of the impossibility of performing some transformations, um, this uh, particular theory that we are referring to uh, tells us that there are actually other kinds of transformations that become possible. So for instance, um, I mean, a classic example is the conservation of energy that, so it says that we can't build a perpetual motion machine of the um, first kind one that creates energy out of no energy. Um, and, and that uh, as, a, as a result, I mean, you can, you know, if you, if you increase energy somewhere in the universe, you must decrease it somewhere else to compensate for the change. And it looks like, a, you know, kind of a very draconian constraint on what we can do. But then if you combine this uh, law with um, other aspects of thermodynamics, you end up having the possibility of building a heat engine. And the heat engine is constrained by the law of conservation of energy, but it can do lots of interesting things. 
and the possibility of the heat engine itself stems from the impossibility of the of the conservation of energy um, and and this is a counterintuitive thing that that seems to um, permeate the whole of physics in a sense you know quantum theory is uh, more constrained than classical physics um, in that it has um, additional principles one of which is this Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that says you cannot uh, observe uh, two, you know, properties of, of quantum objects uh, to the same high, arbitrary high accuracy with the same machine. Um, but um, this impossibility turns out to be very useful because when you have two quantum systems, it directly implies the possibility of having uh, quantum computation and particular effects such as quantum entanglement, etc. And these are really interesting things because, you, you know, it's another instance where the fact that you restrict possibilities allows you for more possibilities in a different sense. And I, I like to speculate about the fact that this is just a speculation, really. But let's say by analogy, um, I guess this is a bit kind of true in, in other uh, realms as well, not, not just physics. For, for example, um, if you consider a game, um, a game where you're allowed to do anything is not so interesting, presumably. But if you add some rules, uh, then you can get an interesting game. Um, you know, you can think of chess, for example, and, yeah. and dropping some of the rules or adding rules on top of it. And of course, you have to do it judiciously. Not all rules would make an interesting game. But there is a little bit of this idea there, too. And also, in general, with... Um, with 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 the uh, uh, novels or or stories that people are writing, um, it's very useful to have criteria that that somehow tell you what you shouldn't be doing in a context, and and somehow um, the more constraints um, you have in a given story, uh, somehow the more interesting it is uh, if these constraints are chosen properly. So in, I can see that there is a little bit of analogy of an analogy here with uh, with the, with, the, with the field of physics. So I tend to think of constraints in a good way, at least in this context. Right. I mean, uh, yeah. If you think enough about it, you, it's sort of obvious in science and physics as whole. Like you see constraints as a positive thing, and we we sort of do see it as a negative thing sometimes you know like when it's mostly we see it as a negative thing when it's applied coercively so like you know exactly. children maybe having to go having to go to school and doing things like that so when it's like coercive that can be an unproductive constraint and absolutely you know, yes when when you're um when yeah like you mentioned chess right I mean, just the board with the pieces, not knowing where to do, that'd be chaos. And we wouldn't really know how to make progress. We wouldn't know how to play the game, have fun, do anything like that. And so uh, when you can add those rules, it really makes the game very fun. So yes. yeah, constraints can definitely be productive. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, maybe this is a trivial question, but I sort of have to ask you, why aren't you on Twitter? Oh, um, I think I, I like to be, um, yeah, 
I, I guess I enjoy Twitter, so I like reading uh, things oh, okay. that people, some people post. So I kind of uh, follow some people just by reading their their um, tweets occasionally. So I like the the way it works, and I enjoy this fact that uh, it can be, you know, you can communicate in very short in a very short format. I think that's one aspect that I really like about it. Um, I haven't joined it yet because um, I like my time to be um, somehow untouched. So in, in a way, yeah, I'm sure. worried that if, um, you know, I would feel very tempted to, you know, just engage a lot in discussions because it's a very nice platform, etc. And I prefer to sort of have some some time where I really have time for, for, for myself where I can think about stuff without being um, interrupted, let's say, by things that, that perhaps are more urgent or seem to be more urgent. So in that sense, I think I might join at some point in the future, but when I feel like I have a bit more time on my hands um, and, um, and on the other hand, I think they are very interesting ways of you know for people to endorse things or praise other things or uh you know talk about some ideas and discuss stuff so in that sense i i, I like it uh but i i'm just concerned that i i mean i really like my own yeah kind of time to be untouched and i i'm trying to keep it almost religiously uh at least you know as much as i can of course because everyone has things to do uh but within the, you know, within reason, I'm trying to keep some time for for just unspoiled thinking, um, hoping that this is. Just, I mean, I guess that's because I, that's what I enjoy the most uh, doing. Right. Yeah, I respect that, and I know we're overshooting a bit here, so we might want to end it there. Though I love that you do read some tweets and you know occasionally see what's going on over there. So. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, as I said, I think it's a very nice platform, and I, I, I think it's great, and I'm happy that it exists in a sense, and I'm hoping that it keeps going on, and yeah. maybe at some point I'll join it. Amazing, great. I'll be waiting for that day. Um, thank you. Yeah, and so this was a great conversation. I thank you so much for doing this. Really lovely talking to you. I think this was very valuable for some people. My, my pleasure. Great. So. Yeah, your book is The Science of Can and Can't, which I'd recommend everybody to read. And everything about constructive theory could be can be found at uh, constructivetheory.org. So that's just for the listeners. Thanks again, Kiara, for doing this. Um, Thank you yeah. so much for, the, for having me. It was great. I enjoyed it. <laughs>